0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org.
1: Here is a sentence I love from Sarah Hendren: Bodies are soft flesh in a world of machinery, and that can be a beautiful match or an experience that's full of hurdles. This is a fact so ordinary, and yet not something we routinely pause to know and to ponder and work with. That our built world is designed around something called normal, and yet every single one of our bodies is mysterious and constantly adapting for better or worse and always, always changing. Sarah is one of those people who has taken in the convergence of her gifts and her life to possess a singular vocation and vantage point on the world, being a painter and loving how art reveals truth not by way of simplicity but by juxtaposition, teaching design to engineering students, parenting three beloved children, one of whom has Down syndrome, This is a conversation that will have you walking through the world, both marveling at the ordinary adaptations that bodies make and asking, in Sarah's words, restless and generative questions of why we organize the physical world as though vulnerability and needs for assistance are not commonplace, indeed salutary forms of experience that reveal the genius of what being human is all about. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Sarah Hendren is an associate professor in the College of Arts, Media, and Design at Northeastern University in Boston. She previously spent nine years teaching at Olin College of Engineering. Her book is, What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World.
0: Krista, Sarah. Hi.
1: Hello, Hi. <laughs> hello. Oh, <laughs> nice to have you on the other end of the line. Really great to be here. Thank yeah. you, Krista. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm always curious about the religious or spiritual background of a childhood, and I know you you grew up like me in the Bible Belt in a relig- religiously saturated world. Yes. Um, and so I want to ask you about that, but specifically, I'm curious if you think back to that air you breathed and that world and that held you, um, and then think about these things that so captivate you now that you're engaged in. I would say, you know, a design sensibility and also an attention to the human body. Um, how do you see, or do you see kind of roots of those interests in that religious or spiritual world of your childhood, that formation?
0: I do. I um, We were part of non-denominational churches in Arkansas. That's where yeah. I grew up. And kind of evangelical, met in a high school basketball gym to start. You know, there was that, um, a real a sense of returning to roots and I think a, even a form of counterculture, I think, mm-hmm. looking back. Um, and so my parents have been part of, the kind of social infrastructure of that kind of style of Christianity for a long time. And there are many good things about it. You know, they've been part of community groups and all that, what we call now social infrastructure, the kind of mm-hmm. showing up for people and meeting and and leaning on one another and uh, so many of those kind of practices. And I think I also found it disembodied. And, you know, when I went to college, I actually went to Wheaton College, which is outside Chicago.
1: Which is Billy Graham's alma mater. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it will tell you something about the way I grew up that people sort of thought that Wheaton was a little bit uh, frighteningly liberal. <laughs> or like, Oh, really? Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like a little bit. And, and I mean, yeah. to be clear, this is a place that where we couldn't drink or dance, you know, at
1: yeah. all.
0: I mean, we signed a pledge to say that we wouldn't. And yet, what is so interesting, I'm so grateful that I went to Wheaton because I got a liberal arts education there. I mean, we read... Mm. Foucault and Zora Neale Hurston and Virginia Woolf and I discovered so many things there. Um, and it's
1: an extraordinary place. It's still it's, it's an, an extraordinary, extraordinary place. Yeah. It yeah.
0: is. And mm-hmm. and well, I could talk about that for a long time, but I like many students at that time, I'm so grateful that I went to a place where first order questions, big questions were on the table. I mean our professors took seriously the questions that are on the minds of people at that age in a particular way. That is like, what are we here for? And what is life about? What is the nature of reality? And like a lot of my peers, I started going to an Episcopal church um, and and a number of my peers um, went to Catholic churches, went to, in other words, the liturgical and sacramental churches of that time. And I would say that uh, finding uh, the Episcopal Church, eventually the Catholic Church, the the kind of sacramental is such an acknowledgment of the animality of the human creature. Yeah. The the kneeling and the images and the, the kind of distinct separateness of that sensory environment. Yes. And images of saints and candles and so many uh, reminders uh, that you are, in fact, an animal creature who has come to seek some way of being more than animal, yeah. but not never never not animal. And I think that, so I will say that, you know, my commitment to, my joy in, everything that's tangible about the world, so the way that artifacts hold ideas mm. and the way that shaping artifacts can then, in tandem, uh, reshape ideas, that mm. artifacts can do that kind of double work, that kind of acknowledgement, finding myself a body in that moment, it has been distinctly important. There's so, much, so many things about that time.
1: When you use the word artifacts... Put some flesh on on that yeah. bone, like say yeah. what yeah, yeah, because I, I think, mean I, think, I feel like for you there's you're so much in your imagination when you use that word, so kind of I want you to kind of download that a little bit. Yeah, use a tech I mean,
0: word <laughs> yes yes, download right mm-hmm. the, the the language of our time, yeah, I mean, artifacts, growing up, I think, like a lot of people drawn to the arts, I loved that paintings and sculpture and the way that a painting or a poem. Can let life be as complicated as it is in mm-hmm. one one kind of distilled form was so joyful to me. Mm-hmm. I think really you'd have to fast forward to when I kind of discovered disability prosthetics and design, and that that was a, a result of my son Graham being born, and Graham has Down syndrome. He's the first of our three children. You know that training in visual culture primed me for seeing. What I would see with him in my life and, and mm. what that was was ar- the artifacts of disability. So, you know, after he was born, just in a few months' time, we started going to physical therapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy and all, all kinds of objects, artifacts, were in those spaces. The little orthotic braces that are made for toddlers are printed with little cheery images of animals, you know, and the, <laughs> right. like. and I would see, like— you know kids in these little mm-hmm. gyms wearing cochlear implants that had like a bright plastic dinosaur on top you know and i would just think wow there's so much going on that's both clinical and functional in these objects but there's also something expressive that's happening that it's they're trying to broadcast something about the person who's wearing them and So that got me interested in prosthetics in my parent role, uh, but eventually I got interested in kind of the engineered and designed, you know, utility and functionality of objects, too. In other words, technology, that's also culture. All of it, though, is doing something to help us make meaning of our lives and also, yes, to get stuff done.
1: Mm-hmm. And to make meaning of our lives as we inhabit our bodies, right? That's I mean, right. that's really that's right. where you focused in and, and are creative. And um, so, so, so the title of your book, which is a wonderful book, "What Kind of Body Do How We Meet the Built World," and and that question, I didn't know until I read this from you, is is really a famous question in the history of philosophy. Would you say a little bit about that?
0: Yes. uh, What can a body do is a question posed by um, Gilles Deleuze, a French philosopher, and he was in dialogue with a much earlier philosophical question um, of Spinoza's, this what can a body do? And they, they meant very different things, but Deleuze was taking this up as a kind of project of posing the body as an assemblage, so not the kind of classical form of the question, what is a body or how is a body like a mind or not like a mind? Hmm. Deleuze is saying something else, which is just like, it depends on the context and what is around what this body can actually do. In the the designed world, the, the presence or absence of prosthetics, but also assistive technologies of all kinds, things like ramps instead of stairways those make possible passage through the built world that is otherwise impossible so you say okay well what is a body in a wheelchair what can it do well it depends you know the it's in part like do the legs ambulate or not but but really the question is what's possible in the built world in the passageway that it's trying to go down so so can it get up a set of stairs? No. But can I get up the incline plane of a ramp? Yes. And everything that that means, you know. You know, there's getting...
1: something that's so interesting about just the way you, you said that because it, it made me, it just kind of shifted my perspective from the kind of question that we ask culturally, which is, is it accessible, right, yes. to yes. you? And then just the way you phrased all that is, you know, the question is, what kind of partnership is, are we, the rest of us, the culture, the architects, right? The, that's right. What that's kind right. of partnership are we in with, yes. with all that's kinds right. of bodies? And I mean, you're, the first line of the book is, from you, every day, every body is at odds with the built environment. That's right.
0: You know, there's porous skin and and this kind of inherent vulnerability. Even you know, and yet, and we build these beautiful hardscapes. Many of them that that do have these edges and corners. And so we we figure out how to how to adjust ourselves in in chairs and you know. Standing and sitting and uh, ambling down the street on uneven pavement and all kinds of things. And right, I think what you said there, Krista, is what's animated my work, which is to say, I think the standard question is how do we make this accessible? And what people mean is how can we make a bigger tent of a world and, quote, not forget people uh, who are using wheelchairs or walkers or crutches or... All those uh, mobility aids, or perhaps a navigational cane, or any number of things. But what I try to do in that book is to say, I don't, you know, I don't really think a tent, making a bigger tent, is really quite the right metaphor here, because people with disabilities have been way out in front in actually reinventing and reimagining the built world in so many ways. So, in other words, instead of that, let's make a bigger tent and not forget. I'd rather you see this rich kind of estuary of, like, this incredible ecosystem of remaking the world in artifacts that, uh, that make more bodies more expressed and more, you know, uh, mm-hmm. able to get into the world and, and more richly varied. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I am trying to say, if you pause and look... Your wonder might be activated by this incredible flesh envelope, you know, that's that's making its way through the world. Mm. It's inherent, like, a- adaptation. So there just are stories throughout of what that looks like.
1: that I learned from you is that this metric of what is normal and kind of building everything around this idea of normal is really new. And that before the 19th century, the paradigm was what is the ideal? And if you were working from what was ideal, then then almost nobody met that, right? That's right. (laughs) So everything was an adaptation, and that was understood. Um, And then there's another, you know, you wrote about, you know, that this also kind of dovetailed with Darwin and interpretations of Darwin. You said like average came to be equated with better and Mm -hmm. best, and what was common was natural, and what was natural was right. And just thinking about that and all the different kind of attitudes and assumptions and actions and design actions that flow from that mentality shift.
0: That's right. And that's a misuse of Darwin, but it was mm-hmm. that kind of social evolution and and indeed eugenics that followed in that way. That like, right, oh, which can, is yeah. the
1: extreme
0: implication
1: of it. That's right. right.
0: And people have written about this like in our own country in the early 20th century county fairs where they would have these, like, better, fitter families, you know, like, families showing up together to kind of be graded on, you know, how, like, how how fit and, you know, in a kind of virile body and mind soundness state they were. Gosh, as yeah. A, yeah, I know. But as a kind of national project, I mean, there was this meaning, like— a political nationalism, like a kind of investment in the betterment of human beings, because it, as though that were possible, right? And and right. you get institutionalization of so-called feeble-minded. I mean, uh, that history is really ugly. But you know, it won't do to kind of look back and say like, oh, those blinkered people were not like them. I mean, there's a long tail of the, of the kind of um, celebration of how quick, how fast, how quote ahead of the curve. People are as a measure of their worth.
1: Yeah, it's just, and it, it's one of these things where, right? If we, if we become conscious of how constructed this is, right? What an inher- inheritance it is. Um, yeah. But that it that it is something that was at one point created and then passed down, then your imagination just opens wide, and I and I feel like, I mean, obviously. You know, first of all, just having your first child and what a heart and mind and life opener that is. And and Graham being born with Down syndrome, um, you know, and I listened to you in another interview, um, and you you made a statement which I, I want to repeat it because it really landed with me, and I, I, I've been pondering it, and I feel like it describes both. You as a human being, and also you as a designer. Um, you know, you said in adulthood, when something really big happens to you, you either just kind of assimilate it into the pre-existing story that you've been living by, or you accommodate and you make room for this experience, and your story shifts. And it feels to me like that's again, that's what happened to you with the birth of your first child, both as a human being and again, like in your craft as a designer.
0: That is very true. I mean, my my dear friend and colleague, John Adler, studies narrative identity in yeah. adulthood. That is his, he's at Olin College, where I worked until this year. And he taught me this, this kind of, you know, that that we make stories of our lives as a biological imperative. Like, we yeah. have to see our lives as coherent. And now, whether that takes on, a positive cast overall or a negative one is is what makes a lot of the difference. But the coherence is really powerful. You know, we need to kind of tell stories that do make sense over time of how we got to where we are. And, and I mean, it's like it's a feature of, in the science, it's a feature of how we, really how we exist. I mean, so there's sort of like genetic factors and there's sort of nurture environmental factors. And then there's this story making. And that really gave language to me for... What happened? I mean, that, that when I had a son, you know, at 32, who had Down syndrome, I just hadn't thought a lot about Down syndrome, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize—I mean, most of all, Krista, the way having a baby with Down syndrome just puts you right square into the middle, whether you want it or not, of the kind of selective, you know, genetic, you know, testing yeah. bioethics debate. So I didn't realize, yeah, that I was entering into that kind of moral quandary about like, well, who who counts, you know? Like, oh, what what's the gosh, what it is gets at this
1: better, best, normal, better, best thing I mean, as well, doesn't it? Yes, does. it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And living with that, you know, and thinking like, well, who who? How can a person be? You know, what what is the? There's no etiology. There's no like disease of Down syndrome. There are right. there are higher risks for other kinds of things, but what we're talking about is low. Low general intelligence that you know, uh, needs for support mm-hmm. over the lifespan if we're if we're just coldly describing it. And it just invited me to th- rethink human worth entirely and in such a way that introduced me to all kinds of other people uh, who have disabilities of all kinds, how it just lit up my imagination for those artifacts, yes, that that bridge the body and the world. But most of all, yeah, like, what does it mean to be a gifted and contributing human being? Where, where does dignity come from? And and how do we talk about it? And how do we plan for it? And, well, there's just so much to say yeah. about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And how did it start making you look at the world differently as a designer? Did that start to happen? It sounds like yeah. you also you describe how because of this Down syndrome – diagnosis or you know identity you you also walked into this world of intense medical testing and and assistance and and technologies uh it, s- it seems to me that that was also really formative to you absolutely just grappling with that
0: yeah and the, and the high contrast of it because i mean we were as all parents are we were just Absolutely smitten with and in love with this singular human being. I mean, in the way that you are. And of course, every parenting, especially a first parenting experience, is so life changing in so many ways. And then to have this other layer, the contrast again was so high. I mean, I'm just thinking us in our little life, me, my husband, and this first baby of ours, and then going to the doctor's office and it just being all the measurement stuff for one thing, charts mm-hmm. and measures and numbers and things, um, risks and possibilities. But then really the imagination behind, you know, just like going to a little gym, a little pediatric gym and being like, this is so clever, you know, the the swing that they devise to be mm. playful, but to challenge the balance, you know, for for mm. a, a baby with low global, you know, muscle tone or whatever. And I just was so taken with the kind of possibility that was suggested there. And then I'll tell you what, too. I saw somehow um, an image of Temple Grandin's uh, squeeze chair. And people may know this Temple Grandin's a, a famous kind of self-advocate who is autistic and she's also an engineer and into animal husbandry. She's done a lot of work in um, in animal husbandry. and she, as an autistic person, she experiences kind of physical affection from other people really in a, as overwhelming, and she designed for herself because she's an engineer what she calls a squeeze machine. So it's a like a wooden chamber that she can get into at the end of the day, and it will wrap around her like a hug, but a hug by proxy. And she then worked with an artist named Wendy Jacob, uh, and they built a, you know some chairs that would that had arms that would reach up around you and hug you. Um, that were that were based on this kind of squeeze chair. And that, to me, was like magical. Something about this like very functional object that was a prosthesis for building a bridge between the body and the world. But it also had this like really interesting poetry about it, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a furniture that gives you a hug. Like what a what an interesting idea, <laughs> you know, that this thing would kind of be animate or something. And I think the reason why that felt so powerful to me at that time is because i thought there is an object that suggests that disability is this adaptive and imaginative you know agencyful um experience that the clinical kind of material language of just crutches and band-aids and ivs and so on that that clinical language would never do justice to this life you know and i knew yeah. it already having a baby with down syndrome who you know, it's like one day he was Graham, like a singular human being, and then the next day people would speak about him as a type. You know, and mm-hmm. that was the hardest of all because we knew, of course, that we had a person with us. You know, the likes of whom had never been, you know, present on the on the planet before, and never will be again. And yet, you know, here here was this kind of like uh, clinical diagnostics are rushing to kind of characterize them thank goodness for doctors and for numbers and averages and controlled right, studies right, and right. all those things <laughs> it's a both and yeah it's a both and and, yeah. and but but this is why I mean I work between mm. art and engineering because I think something like disability needs so many descriptive languages to try to get at what's real you know
1: and you know, from you, I learned that one billion people—that the WHO says identifies one billion people live with some kind of disability—which yeah. um, then really does test that idea of what is normal and not normal. And so, I find myself—I found myself walking this line of like wanting to honor, though you know, disability that I would say, in an ongoing, everyday way, is shaping a life. But here's a beautiful sentence from you as well. Bodies are soft flesh in a world of machinery, and that can be a beautiful match or an experience that's full of hurdles. And it's also true, as you very eloquently described that every single one of us lives in a body that is changing across time and that enters periods of vulnerability and periods, at least, where our bodies don't match this world of machinery, right? And, and it, can be right. Being it can be being pregnant. It can be because you're on crutches because you broke something. It can be this arthritis that is developing in my hands right now, and I don't yes. know, right? That is going to affect me at some point. So I don't know. I wonder how you, uh, navigating this of so honoring... Um, very defining disability, but also understanding that in some ways, you know, it is a spectrum, like so much that we're we're understanding now, so much of human identity. Yeah, that's right. And I
0: think after many years of being taught by disabled scholars and academics who would call themselves disabled, I mean, and, you know, reading deeply in disability studies, meeting so many people, building friendships and colleagueships, I think maybe the most distilled way of talking about it is to say that disability is needfulness, you know, personal mm. and political, mm. social, mm. and so what that means is right that we might actually say that needfulness, because it you know it's temporal and changing and over the lifespan, is a feature actually of of human life yes. and maybe even constitutive of the good life. I, you know, I have mm. come to think, and, and I think we'd want to. Then say, right, well, in the in the 1960s and after you get kind of disability politics as an identity, you get people building a kind of coalition out of atypical bodies because it's not all the same, right? So so global aging is different from right. using a wheelchair, right, uh, being blind and in school, you know, um, the real kind of legal – accommodations and those guarantees that came, for example, with the Americans with Disabilities Act and others like it around the world, those are really important, and they were strategic, you know, kind of policy changes of saying, look, in order to be citizens, in order to be civic actors, disabled people need a kind of infrastructure. And it's really interesting that 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 infrastructure, I mean, we're talking about real material concrete in order to get into the public sphere, in order to go to work, in order to go to school, in order to go to the voting booth. Um, So disability, you know, in that way, you know, people want to be careful and say, well, it's it's as Leonard Davis says, it's cheap to say, well, we're all disabled, you know? Right, but right. Is, yes. But I do think there's something at the, at the high level, existentially, disability is just needfulness. And we might just make friends with that fact, you know? Mm-hmm. We might we might welcome it uh, as a feature of the human.
1: Well, there's a spiritual theological statement, if ever yes. i heard one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher— um, famously said that the human animal, the human creature, is a dependent rational animal. It's so dependence mm. is part of a three-legged stool that, that makes us who we are. That's, yeah, that's almost like a metaphysical statement, you know, that, that we need each other. We could we could have the, a kind of like um, evolutionary biology explanation for that. Well, we need each other as a kind of consequence. We make do, We we cope by needing each other to cooperate. But there's, I don't know, there's something... There's something quite profound about the how social we are, how frail we are. Finally, how hmm. none of us escapes that kind of uh, being in the the subject position of both the giver and the receiver of help. I mean, that that's what's that's what we're talking about.
1: Getting immersed in your work also in just this phrase, independent living, that we, you know, that is now Mm -hmm. just a feature of society, you know, an independent living facility. I mean, what that actually means is that there's a lot of assistance, right? That's right.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of help. I mean, it's actually
1: understanding that at certain points in life, a quality or a feeling, a freedom of independence needs all kinds of support. That's right.
0: That's right, and there's a there's a uh, you know the the independent living movement in this country, which again was in that kind of 60s and 70s era, mm-hmm. was a lot of people you know like Ed Roberts who was a polio survivor and uh, used a chair all his life, and a lot of complex medical equipment went to UC Berkeley with complex medical needs, took up residence in the hospital on campus, and and sort of changed in adaptive reuse of architecture changed that hospital floor into kind of a dorm room and was joined by a dozen mm. other students with complex medical needs this was unheard of you know the idea that they could become students there and they were the ones among others who launched the independent living movement which was so not on campus anymore but in a storefront in berkeley and now in all 50 states mm. a place where you can go in and say how can i outfit my kitchen to make it more usable by me if I'm using a chair or something else? But also, how can I hire, as you said, I mean, assistants? How can I uh, find, you know, a personal aid uh, to help get me dressed in the morning and to the bus stop? Like, what's the just-in-time, you know, kind of assistance that I need? And for those people at that time, you know, these were a lot, polio survivors, for example. I mean, those were people who were at home, went to school at home, were not in the public eye, and were treated and really rendered as, like, just medical patients, full stop, like that's all they were. And so independence right. for them really meant, and they were careful to say, like it doesn't mean doing everything for ourselves. It's not self-sufficiency, but it's self-determination. It is, that's what uh, Judy Heumann said. yeah just passed away this year. Yeah, Fam- she did. Famous yeah. act, yeah. yeah. And so they were they were doing the positive assertion of independence is what I'm saying, yeah. right? And so the twin of that is like, worshiping independence above all so like we're we're 50 years or something from from kind of that moment and there's a paradox to live with
1: Mm -hmm. and yeah culturally that's also kind of how we're inclined to want to interpret that
0: that's right and i think people kind of romanticize like well yeah, yeah it's really interdependence and whatever and i think you know there is still a question in the air, which is that what about just the plain fact of dependence, you know?
1: <laughs> right, right. But you just called it dependent living, and that was seriously, an honorable thing. Seriously, honorable it's
0: so true. <laughs> I, I wonder if it's, you know, uh-uh. it just, I mean, in an American context, like, there's just so much about, you know, we all know this, like, frontier spirit and kind of— yeah. um yeah. That kind of individualism, which again, you know, we wouldn't want to romanticize the absence of independence, you know, and uh, choices and so on. But I think we can all also point to the kind of widespread atomization and loneliness and, you know, all kinds of social phenomena we're living with now, right? That, That is sort of peak independence. And in the design world, you know, I just see so many young engineers and designers who are designing for aging, and the only good they can imagine is for older adults to hang on to every last scrap of independence that they can, because that's a young person's idea.
1: Right, right. Or it's a total orientation, right? Yes. That's shaping things and maybe warping things. I mean, what if it was graceful living, right? What if it was graceful living and we just decided how we were were defining what a graceful life is, and it wouldn't be without need, and it wouldn't be without care and help and support. That's right.
0: I mean, there's probably a role for kind of social robots and, you know, for aging, you know, in some places, carefully done. But I'm much more, you know, just entranced by this Dutch nursing home that, through a set of architectural remodeling changes, figured out they had extra room at the end of their hallways, and they let college students now... Live in the nursing home with older adults in exchange for 20 hours of work um, on that campus. And to me, this is like that kind of intergenerational living, adaptive reuse, take an extant resource, mix people together who don't nominally have things in common. Like th- that, that's an elegant mm-hmm. use of design. Like that, that is thinking what is on offer here? Oh, conviviality, mutuality, mm-hmm. reciprocity, right, all right, of that. Right. You know, Things that make life worth living, you know, like we could use our very best minds and smarts and tools at all scales for those kind of things, too. Instead of equating dignity with, you know, like, let me never need anybody again. That's a really sad life. Yes,
1: yes. And something that you so, um, you've kind of pointed at examples of this as we've been speaking, but when the reality of need is just acknowledged, um, then there's so much Possibility for creativity, yeah. and you you talk about you know for another another kind of animating question for you is like what shall we build? And there's so much contained in that question for you, yeah. right? Yes. And that you know that again, and I I think this gets at what are our underlying with our underlying orientation, our our values, our assumptions. There's certainly uh, an impulse in. Western medicine and in Western culture to fix things right yes. <laughs> to fix it. And also to come up with a device. Um, we like devices, a medical device. Yes. um and also, we can build such extraordinary devices these days, right? So like, yes. you know that there's such creativity there. But you talk so much about, again, if we honor the just a reality of need, like what you see all around you as you are engaging in the built world for all kinds of bodies are these these brilliant adaptations and you say like, you know, an an everyday engineering ethic that that people can cultivate in their lives. Um, It feels to me when I read you that that's happening all around us. And I don't know that it's something that everybody has visibility to that's happening in our world.
0: I think that's right. I mean, I'm not really a designer in the traditional sense. I'm more of a design researcher where I'm trying to, I do some collaborations and make some things, but I'm more of a person who's trying to shine a light on the design that's already going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So things like I have a curatorial project, like a digital project called Engineering at Home, and it's nothing more than the collection of 12 or 15 low-tech tools that a woman made for herself or with partnerships. Her name's Cindy, and she became a quadruple amputee, so she is now missing most of the digits on both hands, so she has okay. a little bit of pincher grasp on one side, uh, but uses two prosthetic lower leg limbs, so she needs you know, a series of objects to make life work, and she was one of these people who qualified for an $80,000 myoelectric arm and hand, you know, prosthetic arm and hand, mm. and she was very grateful for it, and her insurance paid for it, all this stuff, went and trained on how to use it, but it is now like collecting dust in a, in a closet because it's heavy and it's hot and it doesn't actually get things done the way she needs. So instead of that, she's using cable ties that help her pull open the drawers, you know, on a dresser. Hmm. She's using, you know, tweezers to pull out her earrings out of a jewelry box. She's uh, She worked with the, her same prosthetist who got her that fancy arm to build a little cap, little silicone cap that fits over um, her residual hand and has a fork attached in it just so, and it it was made for, you know, just like under $10 or something. Right. (laughs) So, so, and and like none of this is to say like, oh, that means all high-tech prosthetics are bad. It's not. It's just that those, you know, as you said, we have so so much extraordinary technology. What we mean by extraordinary is... It's novel in its materials. It is optimized and efficient in using things like circuitry and carbon fiber, and you know yeah. that it that it does engineeringy impressive things. And and that is really true. And for some people, those tools are transformative. But meanwhile, there are in the garages and living rooms and kitchens of the world, people doing all kinds of inventive things mm-hmm. with stuff to make their bodies. Uh, Move through the world, and you know nobody would look at Cindy typically. You know, in the kind of popular magazines of maker DIY culture, and say, "Oh, there's a there's a hacker maker type." You know, <laughs> right, uh, right? Right, Pe- right? People don't yeah. think of like you know senior citizens in the suburbs like that. And I, I you know, that project—it's a collaboration with an anthropologist, Catrin mm-hmm. Lynch, and myself. We, you know, we were trying to just show this spotlight and say. The material culture of disability is truly everywhere. It's it's low-tech, medium-tech, high-tech. Is scale a factor? Certainly with those big $80,000 arms, I get it. But meanwhile, uh, we might partner with each other to make more things that, that help us do the things that we want. I mean, mm. the most meaningful object in that suite of things is that same little silicone cap that has a ballpoint pen on it. Because Cindy went to her prosthetist and said, you know what matters to me? I want to write thank you notes. Right. Right. And she doesn't have to do that. Like the, She doesn't have to do that. I mean, she can, you know, speech to text on her iPhone. Right. But she really wanted to. That was the thing that was going to make her feel like I, I'm recognizably me with right. this altered body. Right. and And I just wanted people to look at that and say, oh, my goodness, my uncle used to do that, too. Like, I know, oh, I had never thought of that particular idea. And just to see that... You know, there's just such a kind of diminishment story of disability. And even in the prosthetics, it's like, here's how you cope or overcome. And, you know, what's people are just learning. I mean, that's what's happening. You know, people are learning. We are learning Mm -hmm. through ties, obligation, constraints. All those things are actually modes of creativity if we see it as such. There are Mm -hmm. real hurdles, but it's creativity, too. Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. On the Templeton Ideas Podcast, they dive deep into conversations with astrophysicists, psychologists, and philosophers, exploring the most awe-inspiring ideas in our world. Learn more at templeton.org.
1: I think one of the most fascinating subjects of all, and talk about kind of big picture philosophical questions, is is time, the meaning of time, the nature of time. And yeah. I'm so intrigued also about how you talk about time. You know, here's one thing you said: uh, living with questions about time, and talking about your son Graham, about Graham and the diagnostics of his delays, but more urgently, the unknowns about his future, was the loneliest feature of our early months. Mm. And you also said it has been Graham's singular creativity, his adaptive workarounds, his enigmatic learning curves that have wrested my husband and me from the grip of rigid time.
0: That is right. I mean, the gifts of sharing life with all three of those children, I mean, is so manifold. And again... I would not say – I mean, Down syndrome is neither the biggest feature of our family life, but it's also uh, a formative part of it in this way of saying, uh, who are we to one another? We are not projects. <laughs> Children are not our projects. Uh, they they are to share life with. And Graham, you know, Graham is quite proud of his schoolwork. He is uh, – you know, buoyant and connected and engaged in school in a way that just has no relationship to testing and so on. I mean, and so, you know, people will often say, yes, and what happens in adulthood, you know, schooling is this kind of very particular moment. And they're correct, you know, I mean, there is, I'm working right now on thinking about Collaborative housing and all kinds of things. Because why? Because to be vulnerable in time—that—that that is Graham's chief vulnerability and disability. That he is not pacing through school in a way that makes him into an economic citizen. I mean, that—that mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. is what we're talking about. It's mm-hmm. quickness and speed in order to be recognizably productive and therefore valuable as a taxpayer and a and a worker. You know that that the. The disability is needfulness on the state and also needfulness on other people in a distinctive way. Mm -hmm. And so that time, that kind of atypical way of of maneuvering through time, yes, has helped all of us in our family to see uh, what what are we attached to in our worth and what will we do, uh, how will we build uh, the kind of lives that we want, not just for ourselves, but in our communities, where economic worth is is one piece of who uh, many of us are, but where the human family is is a much bigger thing. I mean, crip time is this kind of term of art in disability studies that I learned from other disability scholars. And it, it is that acknowledgement, the kind of slowness that comes with a lot of conditions, aging, but also maybe maneuvering mm-hmm. with gear and and again making friends with that slowness and trying to ask ourselves well what what is the hurry about are, are we do we want our lives subsumed by our economic worth again none of this is to say that we don't in a realistic way live in, in a time in which we work for money yes I, I get it but the invitation is also
1: to ask what our lives are about yeah so so for this season that we're doing of the show we're We're focusing on the body and on embodied experience and embodied intelligence, um, in part because we've entered, you know, for many of us, it seemed felt like it came suddenly into this new technological era of AI. And I'm interested in, you know, how how the new ai is in fact a student of us and but it is a student of us on the internet right yes yes <laughs> and and so i feel like it you know and to state it to state it positively again you know as an opportunity we might take that up as a calling or it might compel us to to really think deeply about what it means to be human in the fullness of that and mm-hmm. And what is all this – what is the intelligence and creativity that lives in our bodies and that is really beyond the visibility of this technology? And and how do we, you know, really honor and cultivate that? Um, and so I'm curious because you've also worked uh, – you know, as you said, you were at kind of an artist at the Olin College of Engineering for a long time. You've worked – you work a lot with engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious about just your vantage point of the – how – where you sit in terms of your interests and your expertise – this vantage point of the body in the built world, how does that, and and disability, how is that infusing your reaction to the emergent AI in our midst, this kind of new development in our lives with technology and, you know, the questions you might be asking?
0: Yeah, I mean, like everybody, I'm watching uh, as these things emerge and you know, on, on a given Tuesday or Thursday, my ideas change for sure, trying to figure this out. I mean, I will say I, I've, I've certainly seen the way that digital technologies have been really uh, life-changing adaptive tools for people with disabilities. So things like smartphones uh, and I mentioned speech-to-text, the fidelity of yeah, which has yeah. gotten so much better. So, I mean, yeah. I, we have reason to think that... At that low-level amplified assistance mode, uh, we have reasons to think that that will also be uh, adaptive and, and as an assistance kind of tool for kind of everyday problem-solving and so on. I mean, I think as somebody who thinks a lot about cognitive disability and spends a lot of time with people uh, with intellectual disabilities, I'm really skeptical of the way that artificial intelligence Bundles together a narrow idea of what intelligence is, and what it means is like right. right, It's like what is a a pattern finding machine that can that can also Mm -hmm. average and spit out a kind of optimized new set of patterns from those patterns, and and the idea that processing power is the the mark, the, the sort of quick processing of those patterns is the sum total. Of intelligence. And I you know, I know that people are sort of like, well no, we'll we'll feed this with kind of affective uh, and, and psychological helps. I mean, I that, that stuff I'm I'm dubious of if you look at again, that it's it's averaging material that's it's got in front of it, but but that, that is the extent of processing. It is quite quick mm-hmm. in a wonderful way. I'm sure it will find, uh, make all kinds of new data for things like rare genetic diseases and, you know, kind of highly bespoke, you know, treatment on cancer. All that stuff's really exciting. I just think we're forever um, kind of calcifying this idea about what ability really is. And when I spend time with people with cognitive disabilities who don't use verbal language, for example, and I think about, I just wrote a article that's coming out in December about an art artists kind of matching program, placing artists in a day center for adults with significant cognitive disabilities. This is in Scotland. Almost no language is exchanged and they spend time together finding common interests that are sensory, light, sound, uh tactile, uh textiles, right. all kinds right. of things and the artists aren't there to try to like therapize these people they're they're both really interested in as one artist said to me pure qualia you know the the experience of being alive and they are trying to make a human connection where they can be made and i suppose this will sound really you know kind of romantic and untechnical but i do think that there is just something Going on there that defies that kind of processing power intelligence paradigm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well,
1: so, so if, well, right. And so if you, yeah, even large language models can't read something that doesn't really rely on language. That's right. Um, That's right. uh, So if I just ask you, um, uh, just, you know, the notion of intelligence and, and the intelligence of the body and, and your life with Graham, yeah. you know, where where Down syndrome is called a c- cognitive disability, but yeah. intelligence has so many forms. I mean, where, where does that right. phrase take your thoughts?
0: Well, I mean, it, I suppose it takes me partly to, <laughs> you know, those graphs that sort of claim that like there's like, Data and inferences and knowledge that becomes wisdom, you know, like as though, as though wisdom naturally proceeds from the accumulation of again in processing patterns. And I, mm. I, what I see in Graham is a kind of wisdom about the enjoyment of one another. You know, the, all the things that so many. You know kind of chattering classes folks say about like trying to get to the you know simplicity and zen and essence and of (laughs) of life
1: and i think like
0: well i know somebody who's extremely good at that you know and and it's not because he's quote simple i mean that that would be wrong to say it too but that there is a kind of presence and enjoyment of presence and a kind of uh accepting of the giftedness of life that is inherently wise and it doesn't come from knowledge it doesn't come Mm -hmm. from the mathematical accumulation of processing power and therefore the rendering of something that's monetizable it it comes from what it means to relate to enjoy to take in to uh, pursue interests you know that, that those things are um those things are some again some of the things that make us the most alive that we're trying to get past ultimately that that categorizing classifying brain
1: There's someplace else in another interview you you quoted a theologian, um, and I didn't catch the name about cultivating an openness to the unbidden, yeah, which also feels like uh, a mark yeah. of wisdom and yeah. aliveness. Could you yes. say a little bit of that?
0: Yeah, that's William May. Um, and here again, I think so. He's talking about yes, the unbidden as constitutive of the good, so the unchosen features of our lives. And here again, I think, at least in this country in a contemporary way, there is a kind of romanticization of interdependence, and we say, well, we need each other, and let's not overdo it with the individualism, you know, uh, mutual aid and so on. But I see people kind of hedge and say, well, as long as you're choosing, you know, the people to be, interdependent with. And I always think like, that's not not how it works. You know, obligation, in other words, Mm. is seen as diminishment. I mean, people can't imagine that my two neurotypical children, who again, are, I mean, Down syndrome is not the the story of our lives, you know, like we're doing all Mm -hmm. kinds of other things. They can't imagine that my two children might actually have a richer and more fulfilling life in their adulthood with Graham, who, yes, will place some obligation on them. I mean, and a lot of people mm-hmm. say, like, oh, that's nice for you now, but it's I mean, there's a very mm-hmm. eugenic logic in the way that people think about this stuff. How could you burden those two other children? They cannot imagine mm-hmm. what it's like to share life with somebody like Graham because they cannot imagine his gifts. you know, they cannot imagine his giving that. So in other words, did I choose Graham in the sense that I mean you don't order you know a child from a restaurant the the one arrives,
1: yeah.
0: but I you know saying yes to that when I did have a choice right of saying yes to that, uh, I mean it played out differently in in my pregnancy and stuff but but saying yes actually opened up all kinds of I mean all kinds of interactions, family culture insight, you know, into the world. And so the unbidden, I think I, I just I think the mythology of life unfettered and only mm. driven by choosing and optimizing. And again, that's the kind of AI thing, that choosing, optimizing, selecting for patterns, clearing the path, you know, for our uh, what? For self-actualization. I think History shows that the meaning of our lives is as much made by uh, the demands that are placed on us and the and the and mm. what we see mm. in those in exchanges as much as the choosing. I mean, I I really do believe that. Mm. Mm. And I yeah. No, go on. I just uh, I I think this repulsion about dependence is everywhere. I mean, in in aging our conversations about aging and end of life. You know, I think I'm seeing in all kinds of bioethical spaces, people trying to rationalize, you know, uh, medical assistance in dying or whatever. I mean, in part, because the idea that one would be dependent and therefore a burden, quote unquote, to their family members would be a terrible way to end one's life. And I want to be as absolutely clear-eyed and sober about the very real difficulties of that, especially when you think about healthcare systems and the way invisible labor gets played out. And yet my friends describe the end of their parents' lives as some of the most meaningful moments that they shared. And and again, it's it's a kind of vantage on whether we can see even some of what we would call suffering as woven into the fabric of how, how we make meaning, you know, uh, mm. how we, how yes. we flourish, yes. right? As opposed to our self-reported, changeable, surface happiness. Mm. But no, like our, our flourishing, the meaning that we made. Mm.
1: I want to read something you wrote, um, and perhaps you would want to reflect a little bit on it. It's very beautiful. Um, who is the world designed for? Who, in turn, can grant or summon the power to do the designing or the building? And what can a body do, whether in life, in our modest every day, or when conditions suddenly change? Let these be our restless and generative questions, each of us in our many bodies making and remaking this adaptive life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you and I share an interest in restless questions. Yes, and generative <laughs> um, questions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like trying to find a, a you know, an ever more precise language for the way that disability as a form of insight can collect everybody. I mean, it, that it can... Meaning collect us into its that insight, that wisdom about the world, that coming into contact with needfulness and finding oneself part of something really big. And that is what I wanted to try to issue as an invitation. Not, again, that, that our experiences are the same because, of course, our distinctions really matter. But that the restless questions is a form of staying energized rather than resigned about uh, what what is in our way right now, where the misfits lie and and, and what we might make together in the future. I mean, it, there, it just, you know, I want that this kind of, for design to be a portal to the, the questions of those what if kind of questions, not just the questions of professional expertise, you know, what could be built uh, tomorrow, although I'm interested in that, but really could we cultivate the kind of, agency and openness and surprise and joy and difficulty uh, that disability makes evident and could we recognize ourselves. And I really do mean we. I don't mean the kind of, that kind of as a rhetorical flourish. I really mean the collective we seeing disability as something really true
1: <laughs> and and maybe seeing ourselves in it. And when you use that phrase, where the misfits lie, I think what you're talking about is where there is where what is built and designed does not fit the actual reality of, yes. of human bodies moving through it, with it, living with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is a foundational kind of idea from Rosemarie Garland Thompson about misfitting, where she says it's like being a person with disability, she is one herself, is being a square peg in a round hole. But that's a really interesting kind of statement, not because it's just like, huh, things don't fit. No, it's because it's unclear— whether the square peg or the round hole is the site of the misfit, in other words,
1: right. right,
0: if my legs don't walk, is it the question of a better wheelchair to augment my body, or is it a question of like well, what's available in public space on the on the exterior of a building? okay, well, now our questions just got like fractal, you know, like in terms of what what where right. possibly we might intervene, and that that's that's what's so so interesting about design is that it's not clear whether the body is calling for you know amplification and augmentation and perfectibility you know in the in the kind of fantasy way yeah maybe some really good tools but also what shapes and sounds and textures of the world might just shift a little uh, be more flexible in the way they're joined together
1: Sarah Hendron is an associate professor in the College of Arts, Media, and Design at Northeastern University in Boston. She previously spent nine years teaching at Olin College of Engineering. Her book is What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World. You can also find some of her short pieces of writing on her website, sarahendron.com. Her newsletter is Undefended slash Undefeated. The on Being Project is Chris Hegel Lauren Drummerhausen Eddie Gonzalez Lillian Vo
0: Lucas Johnson
1: Suzette Burley
0: Zach Rose Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel Gretchen Honnold Padre Tuma, Gautam Srikishan, April Adamson Ashley Herr Amy Chatelaine, Cameron Musar Kayla Edwards Tiffany Champion Juliette dallas Feeney, Vanessa Hale and Andrea
1: Preveaux on Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Galtham Shriekeshen. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America, one creative act at a time. The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to cultivating the connections between ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting initiatives and organizations that uphold sacred relationships with the living earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.